So I get the opportunity of teaching you today from the book of James. And I'm wondering, I want to ask you a question to start off with. Have any of you that are parents ever had a battle of wills with one of your children? Oh. Well, thankfully, that's never happened to me. But um, yeah, that was a joke. Zach laughed. He knows better. Zach knows better than that. Yeah, I heard a, I heard a story. I heard a story. That's quotes, if you didn't know, um, about a preschooler that some would call strong-willed. And the biggest challenge for this family, I don't know about you, but this seems to be like the moment when it's always going to happen, if it's going to happen, dinner time, right? The biggest challenge is dinner time. So they are trying to get them in the high chair. They're trying to make them eat their vegetables or just eat anything other than junk. And what does the kid want to do? They want to fight. They want to have their way. Um, this, the kid never wants to sit in the high chair for some reason. Is this going in and out? Is it the battery? Well, uh, how about if I just do this? Is this going to work? We'll see if I can do this one-handed. All right. Um, <clears throat> and so this child never wanted to sit in the high chair, never wanted to do anything that the parents wanted them to do at dinner. And one night, tempers kind of got a little edgy. And finally, the mom, after an especially tough day, had had enough. And she forcefully gets the kid into the, uh, into the seat, forcefully buckles the high chair, makes all of that work, and gets the legs forced in there and scrapes them a little bit probably in the process. The kid's freaking out. And with an exhausted but direct voice, we've all, thank you, sir, with, we've all heard this mom voice, right? Have you heard the mom voice before? Uh, this direct voice. You will sit in this chair and you will be quiet and you will eat your food until I decide it's time for you to get up and you will like it. <laughs> right? Have any of you ever talked like that? Yeah. Well, uh, this kid, of course, is, is, this is a battle of wills and the kid's not giving up. The kid looks the mom right in the face and says, I may be sitting on the outside, but on the inside I'm still standing. It's a battle of wills, right? That never happens to you. Uh, Derek talked last week about worldliness and what worldliness looks like. And uh, if, you, if you missed it, we actually posted a video of his illustration on Facebook um, of planting the flower in the Oreos and root beer, right? That's not going to work. That's kind of like worldliness in our life. Um, but this week is an extension of that same idea from a slightly different angle. So worldly living is not just displayed by an outward disobedience to God. That's definitely one way it shows up. But sometimes it can show up in an attitude very similar to that preschooler at dinner time. Sometimes we're godly on the outside, but we're worldly on the inside. And we're fighting it. We're having that battle of wills constantly inside of us. And that shows up in how we disregard God as we plan our life and our daily activities. So even though we might appear to be following God on the outside, we appear to be following what God wants for our life. On the inside, it's a battle of wills as we fight to keep control, as we fight to be in charge ourselves. Our lives should be lived seeking and submitting to God's will. I think we would all say, yeah, I agree with that. But sometimes we forget that we're not God. 
we need to be reminded that there is one God, and it's not you. And that's what James wants to do in our passage today. That's exactly what he is saying to us in James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. And before we dive into that, let's pray together. God, I just thank you for today. I thank you for the fact that you're so patient with us, the fact that you, you are God, and you move, and you guide, and you direct, but you let us sometimes fight you when we shouldn't. And so, God, I pray if there's anything in, in us today that needs to be dealt with, that needs to be corrected, that you would make that obvious so that we can be more of who you want us to be. Help us to remember when we leave this place that there is one God, and it's not us. In your son's name I pray. Amen. So verses 11 through 17, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one under the seat in front of you or uh, somewhere right around you. It'll be on page 1115. Hopefully that's correct, since I'm the one that puts it up there. Uh, hopefully I did it right. But it'll be close to that. If it's not five, it'll be six. James chapter 4, 11 through 17. I'm going to read all the verses, and then we're going to go through kind of two at a time and break them down and see what the ideas are here in this passage. So starting with verse 11, James says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So even for the early Christians, even for these uh, Christians that had been under persecution and had been dispersed, and James is trying to encourage them and help them to see what it really means to follow Jesus, even for them, there's this obvious battle of wills going on that James is seeking to address. So again, if you don't get anything else today, I want you to get this. The underlying theme of these verses, there is one God and it's not you, okay? So the first way that James says we put ourselves in the role of God, the first thing we do is we judge others. So look again at verses 11 and 12. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. So Remember the audience, the Jewish Christians that have fled persecution. They need each other, right? They've just been um, dispersed from their homes because they became followers of Jesus. They are under persecution. They should be bonding together. They should be close-knit. They should be able to rely on each other. And what does James say is happening? They're speaking evil against one another. Thankfully, there's none of this in the church today. Oh, I got, a few, I got a few laughs. Paul, you've been in the church a while, right? You've seen this before? Yeah. The very people that God says should be our brothers and sisters, that we should be tight-knit with sometimes, are the first ones to step on the throat. 
to say the wrong thing, to speak evil against one another. And James says, if you're doing that, then you're not allowing God to be who he wants to be in your life. You're putting yourself in the place of God because only God has the right to judge. Only God has the right to make these decisions to be critical of who we are and what we're becoming. So notice the progression that James describes here. I don't know if you remember this, but it was kind of a nightmare for a lot of people. But when you did proofs in geometry, okay, I got a few groans. That's right. Uh, When you did proofs in geometry, you start with one thing that's true, and you do all these other things that are true in order to prove this last thing is true, right? That's how I remember it anyway. It's been a while. So James is kind of like that. He's he's doing a proof here in these verses um, when he shows that eventually how this worldliness makes its way into our life. So speaking evil against a brother is equal to speaking is equal to speaking evil against the law and judging the law. By judging he means deciding if it's right or wrong. Deciding if it's right. Do I think God's way is right or not? So I'm judging it. I'm deciding. Um, judging the law means you're not following the law because you're deciding if you want if you think it's worthy of following or not. The only one with the authority to judge the law is the lawgiver. Guess what? It's not you. That's God. So since you are not God, don't judge your neighbor. You see how it comes full circle? It's like a proof in geometry. So we should not be judging one another because we're not God. When we speak negatively about another believer, we're reflecting that critical fault-finding spirit, it's a direct contradiction to the close family that God says we should be, to the close ties that we should have. We should be represented by love, not by criticalness, not by fault-finding. And it says in our heart, we think we know more than God because we place our judgment about that person above his. I don't think any of us want to be in that spot, but man, how easy is it to do? So even these early Christians, when they needed each other the most, were apparently speaking evil against one another. And God says we should do what? He says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, love your neighbor as yourself. He says in 1 John 2, 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. So you might think you're okay, but there's something going on. There's an issue in your heart of submission to God if you're, if you're not able to love your neighbor. And there are people that feel like it's their responsibility to be critical, like it's their role in, in life. My job is to find the fault in everything. Um, and Jesus has something to say about that, actually. In Matthew 7, I'm going to put this one on the screen. Matthew 7, 1 through 3, Jesus says this, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. So we've all heard those verses before. We're really good at seeing the wrong in someone else, of finding the fault in someone else, without spending the necessary time to have a humble approach to who we are, who God wants us to be, how God wants us to live. We need to have an honest look at ourselves. And James says, if you have a realistic look at yourself, if you realize that you're not God, when you understand that you're not perfect, you will not speak evil of one another because only God has the right to make and carry out his laws and judgments because only God is perfect. And guess what? You're not him. 
So the first way we try to take God's role in our, in our life is to judge others. But the second way we put ourselves in God's place is making plans without him. Now, this one's a little more difficult. Uh, anybody willing to admit that you're a planner? You like to have things figured out? You're five steps down the road, and you turn around and realize no one else came with you? Um, yeah. All right. Well, I definitely have some of those tendencies, but I married someone that fits that description a little bit more than me. And I'm going to tell a story. I got permission, so don't worry. I'm still going to be married after this. Uh, But Jennifer likes to make plans. She likes to arrange things in her mind and in her life. Uh, And I think they're kind of arbitrary. And I'm just kind of mean that way. So when we were dating, we started to get pretty serious very quickly because I could just tell that she was the one. I told my friend the night that he introduced us, I could see myself marrying that girl. So we start dating. We start talking about getting married. We start talking about being serious. And as part of that conversation one night, she throws out this weird thing that she had in her head. This is me talking now. That we had to date at least six months before we got engaged. This was a hard rule in her mind. Like, nobody's, you got to date at least six months or you're probably not going to make it. Well, this will give you a little insight into my personality. As soon as I hear that, I'm thinking, I'm going to make sure that we do not what you just said. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of my ornery personality. If you tell me there's only one way to do it, I'm going to figure out a way to show you that there's a different way, no matter how painful that might be to me. I don't know why I'm like that. I just am. And so, at five months, I decided that was long enough. And I proposed to her, and one of her comments after asking me where the ring was, because she didn't think I had a ring, but one of the comments was, it hasn't been six months. This was a hard rule in her mind. She had made a plan. This was, I don't know when she made this plan. It might have been when she was 14 and making her wedding album uh, dream book. I don't know. But she made this plan, and she forgot to make sure that I was on the same page, right? And so I was kind of like the way life happens to us, right? Something in life always comes along and says, oh, so that's how you thought it was going to go. Let me show you. It's about to get a, you're about to get a curveball. It's about to change. Um, because on some level, we all like to think we know what we want our lives to look like. We all like to think we know what the best plan is. We're told to plan out our future, right? So we're dealing with that a lot with Josh right now because he's about to be a senior, and we're trying to figure out, okay, where is he supposed to go to school? What's he supposed to study? It's like you have to have a 35-year plan all of a sudden. Um, We're dealing with that a lot. There's a lot of pressure to have everything figured out and planned out, and it doesn't stop your senior year. It continues to be something. People always want to know what what you think is next, what your future holds, where you're headed. And if you don't have these answers, sometimes you feel inadequate. But here's the good news. Circumstances have a way of short-circuiting your best plans. Just like uh, guys like me come along and say, no, six months, that's not going to work. We're going to do five months. Life is a lot like that. And once again, James tackles a very practical issue. And if you're honest with yourself, it's something we easily fall into. It's easy as we're planning and walking through this life to make plans and set goals that we expect God to fall in behind. 
We ask God to bless our plans. We don't ask God to give us plans. It's easy to plan your life as if you control the future and you have control over all the factors that affect you. The problem with that is we make decisions as if God does not exist. So look again at those verses 13 and 14. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We see here a pretty ordinary description of businessmen making plans for when and where to do their business. Now remember, these are Jewish Christians that have been dispersed. So they're trying to figure out in this circumstance how to make a living. But one of the things they should have been thinking about is, how can God use me to spread this new message that I have received about Jesus now that I'm dispersed? Who around me needs to hear about this? Where should I go to do my business that would bring the most honor and glory to God? Looking to see how and where God wanted them. Um, But they planned their life, even though they were strong believers, even though they were willing to be persecuted for who Jesus was, they planned their life as if God didn't matter. James is saying they didn't consider his will for their daily decisions. They lived as if their lives were in their own hands. And unfortunately, I have some very personal experience with this. Now, the last sermon I preached, it was tough because it was just tough material about faith and works and how those two go together. This sermon is tough because every point that God brought out of it, I had a personal illustration and that kind of hurts some, to remember some of the ways that I uh, exemplified the things that James is, is talking or teaching against. And there's one particular time when, I don't know if you re- know the whole story, but we moved here from Alabama a couple of years ago. We ended up in Alabama after living for almost six years in Tucson. Now, Tucson was a place that we loved. It was a place that our kids uh, grew up through their elementary school years, the older two, Um, The younger two came along in Tucson, so that's all they had ever known. And we felt like it was time that that God wanted us to move on from the church we were serving there in Tucson. Different circumstances uh, made us feel that way. And so this opportunity came along in Alabama, and we thought, at first we thought, no, we're not supposed to do that. As we investigated it, as things continued to be the way they were in Tucson, We finally decided we are supposed to pursue this. When I had to have the conversation with Josh and Andrew about moving from Tucson, it was an extremely difficult conversation. In the middle of that difficulty, I made a promise to them without really thinking about the ramifications, without really thinking about what God might want for us. I promised Josh and Andrew that that we were going to live in Alabama until they graduated from high school. I said, I'll do whatever it takes. I want you to have that experience. I don't want you to have to move again. So this promise became a really heavy burden. Because when we got to Alabama, it wasn't very long before we realized, I don't see myself here very long. This isn't good. This is not what was described to us. This is kind of a, like they gave us one picture and now we see reality and it's very different. Um, And I won't bore you with all the details, but we knew really quickly that this was not a place we wanted to be long term. 
Um, and so I began to think about things like leaving the church, working at a bank, um, whatever it would take to keep my family in that town because I had made that promise. Um, the Josh and Andrew and Jennifer, they all knew that it was a, a heavy burden. I wasn't myself. It was a very difficult time, all because I had presumed to, to decide what God might want for us. I had presumed that God would, would allow us to live there until they graduated from high school, but he had a different plan. And I was miserable until I gave God his job back. When I gave God his job back, he opened the door to Carson City. And all of the things that we thought were going to be true about Alabama have been true here. So, we don't know what tomorrow will bring, and James actually takes that reminder one step further when he compares our life to this mist, right? It's a temporary mist. So, even though we don't know the future, we make decisions as if everything is secure. We make decisions as if what's happening now is always going to be happening, as if we control everything and can make it turn out like we want, but we all know that life is unpredictable, right? In the span of eternity, even the longest earthly life is brief. And when you fail to acknowledge your dependence on God in your plans, you miss opportunities to be part of something bigger than yourself. So you can go ahead. You can make your story the most important thing. You can try to, you can try to build it up, but guess what? It's just a mist. And when we allow ourselves to be dependent on God, when we join our story to his story, then we become part of something bigger than ourselves. Um, as we've prayed, as we've discussed, as we've wrestled with the idea of what God wants for common ground in this planting, in this movement that we think God uh, wants to begin, this has been one of my most fervent prayers, probably because I have this recent experience that was so painful, but um, that we wouldn't make any plans without God, that we wouldn't try to convince God to bless our way, to think we've got it figured out. Okay, God, now get in line behind us. But that we would humbly, honestly seek his face and his plans for his kingdom. Because even the story of our church, without God, it's a really small story. It's nice that he's been doing some things. It's nice we've had some activities. We can put a cool video up about all the neat things the kids have done. But if God's not involved in that, it's a really small story. It's a mist. It's a vapor. But God's story is not small. And when we allow him to control our plans, we become part of his eternal kingdom story. And I really like this. It's corny, but I like it. History. His story. You become part of something much bigger than yourself. So we've got to make the most of our opportunities. We must invest time, not just spend time. And in our busy schedules, we must seek God's will. We must have his plans and goals in our work and in our families and in our desires. So how do you do this? What's the secret? How do you make this happen? Well, it's something you hear talked a lot about here at Common Ground, and that is abiding. The key to seeing this playing out in your life is abiding. It goes back to John 15, the idea of Jesus being the vine, and we are the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So as you're navigating this life, the best thing you can do is stay close to Jesus. 
because he promises to be with us, to guide us through his spirit, to teach us, to lead us in the right direction. The best thing you can do is not fret over every decision. The best thing you can do is love Jesus, spend time with Jesus, abide in Jesus. It's walking in the spirit. It's nurturing that relationship. It's great to have goals, but we can't make them as if God doesn't exist because the future, our future, is not in our hands. I can look around this room and I know stories of people that have been thrown a curve, that thought they knew what was next, and life changed quickly. It's so easy to let plans form in our minds and roll off our tongues before ever stopping to consider what God wants. And history is full of people that met every earthly goal but died miserable and alone. Don't let that be you. Life's only certainty is its uncertainty, and we've got a plan with eternity in mind. The only way to navigate that with confidence, again, is aligning your plans with God's will and being part of his story. I came across this quote as I was uh, studying for today, and uh, it's by someone named Vernon Grounds, who I don't even know who that is, but I really like the quote. It says, write your plans in pencil, then give God the eraser. Submit to him in all of your plans. And this leads us to the final way that we put ourselves in the place of God, and that is assuming we know better. It's kind of an extension of the second one. But let's look at those last three verses again, 15 through 17. It says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Notice this flows straight out of that previous section, talking about the businessman. He counters their thoughts and explains the proper perspective, the right way to think. He says, submitting first to God's will before you decide anything, understanding your place in relation to him, and having a faith to believe and act on the idea that God's way is the best way. This is where we get in trouble. We, we say, I submit to God, but then we think my way is better than his way. We've got to submit to the fact that God's way is the best way. And when we assume we know better than God, we're arrogant. And what does James call that? Evil. You know, I really wish he would beat around the bush a little bit or kind of force us to read between the lines. But James doesn't do that, does he? He just punches us in the gut once again. Um, operating outside of the will of God because we think we know better is arrogant, it's evil, it's sin. Acknowledging God's will affirms his control over our lives. We live only because he wills it. He controls everything. So as a follower of Jesus, when you're doing God's will, it is an act of worship. It's something that's done from the heart. It's a way of life. It's recognizing that he has to give you the power to do it. It's recognizing that he's in ultimate control. It's another way, and this is what James is all about. He's saying this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's another way to show a living and true faith in Jesus. A strong desire to do the will of God is a sure mark of a changed life. A strong desire to do the will of God is a sure mark of a changed life. Now, you can be sure that challenges will come. Like I told you, I had, I had a story for every point today, and I actually left some out because I didn't think you want to hear my, everything about my life. But um, I had a very serious challenge when I was in the same time of life as Josh. So starting my senior year, I'm starting to fill out all the paperwork. I feel like I have to know everything about my future. 
They're asking me all these questions. What are you going to major in? What is your career path? What, you know, blah, blah, blah. Where do you think you want to live? How many pets do you want to It just seemed like it never, never would end. All these details that I have to figure out. And I felt like God wanted me to do something for him. I didn't know what that looked like. My dad was a pastor, and so I had always said, God, I'll do anything but that. You can, I'll, you can have me for anything but that, as long as I don't have to do that. And um, so, yeah, look where I am right now. Um, you can kind of see how that story played out. Once again, I had to realize that God was God and I'm not. But during that senior year, as I'm trying to figure out, uh, I'm writing things in the blank about career path. It just felt wrong. I'm writing things about my major. Nothing felt like it was what I really was supposed to do. I felt like God had something he wanted for me that was different. And I went and talked to my youth pastor about it. And he had this advice. Try to forget it and see if it goes away. And if it doesn't for like a year, come back and talk to me again. Wow. That was tough. But it was really good advice. Because over the course of that year, God would not leave me alone. And so every time there was something about a decision, about submitting to God, I just knew that he was all over me and wanted me to say yes to him, and I just kept saying no. My youth pastor told me to wait a year, so I kept blaming him. He told me to wait a year. I would hold on to the chair in front of me. My knuckles would be white um, until finally on a Sunday night, and yeah, we had Sunday night service at the church I grew up in. We're singing like the 12th verse of Just As I Am. Because God knew that it was time for me to say yes. And I finally uh, took that step out and walked forward. And I said, I feel like God wants me to do something for him. I don't know what that means. But I, I want to say that in front of everyone so that they can hold me accountable. Well, everyone was super excited about that. Um, my dad knew that I'd been wrestling with something, so he was excited that I'd finally figured it out, and he wanted to encourage me. And he said his prayer for me was always, let him do anything except this. So <laughs> apparently he hadn't, learned, he hadn't learned who God was either along the way. But, um, so I had been involved in music. I had been involved in choir. Everyone started telling me, well, you should do music ministry. That's what we called it, music ministry. So I was going to be the guy that arranged the music for the church, um, and I was going to learn what it took to do that, so I thought I should major in music and, and do that. So I was going to Baylor University, and when I arrived for orientation, I walked into the music school, and they said, hi, we're glad you're here. What's your name? Told them my name, and they said, well, this is really weird. You're not enrolled in the music school. And I went, well, that's really weird, because, like, I have all the stuff, and I have a dorm room, and I got a meal card, you know, so I'm definitely coming here. Uh, they said, well, that's different. The music school has its own enrollment, which I, apparently my parents didn't look at their mail or something. Uh, I was supposed to come during the summer and do some things to get enrolled in the music school, which I hadn't done. Well, thankfully, I had a scholarship called the Presidential Scholarship, which was a big deal, and they hadn't had a presidential scholar in the church music program in like a decade. So when they found out I was a presidential scholar, they start pulling strings. They're like, oh, you want to do church music? Okay, well, we'll figure this out. Well, you need to do this audition and this audition. So it was like this whirlwind for the next couple of days. I did a piano audition uh, the next day, and they said, okay, well, that's good. You can be piano level two. We'll get you, we'll get you a schedule, blah, blah, blah. So then the next day, I'm supposed to do the voice audition. And I don't know if you know what this is like, but... 
I'm about to tell you. Because <laughs> it's scary. So you walk in, you hand your piece of music to a pianist who you've never met. You're in a tile room. There's like seven chairs arranged in a semicircle with all these crusty old professors sitting there looking at, this is my memory of it. I'm sure it wasn't like that. But there's all these professors looking at you with clipboards. And they say, okay, please sing your piece. Well, I was kind of overwhelmed by all that was going on. I didn't sing my best, but I thought I was okay. And I thought, you know what? This is for me to learn how to do better. So there, maybe they'll put me in a low class, but at least I'll be in and I can, you know, get, I can get all this over with and have my schedule and just move on. Well, the, the head of the voice department at Baylor University, when I finished singing, said this to me. I see you feel called to do music ministry in the church. Because she had my bio so they would know a little bit about who I was. And I said, yes, that's correct. And she said, well, it's amazing to me how many people come through here that don't have the talent to do what God called them to do. <laughs> Meaning, like you, like you're not good enough. <laughs> and I'm like, all right. This has been like a year-long struggle. I finally think I figured it out, and I go to this audition, and this lady tells me I'm wrong. I don't have the talent to do what I had struggled with for a year to figure out what I think God wanted me to do. Now, in that moment, I had a choice. I could have, I could have just punted. I could have packed it in. I could have said, you know what? God must not have a plan for me. I need to go figure this out. Um, but instead, I continued to believe in God's calling on my life. I realized it was going to maybe look different than I planned, but I continued to believe that God had something he wanted me to do for him. Now, I immediately dropped all my music classes because that was going to be a waste of time, but I stayed in voice because there was something about me that wanted to prove that lady wrong, like kind of like that thing with Jennifer earlier. That's just part of my personality. So I was in this voice class. This was the lowest of the low. This was the voice class for business majors. For, um, yeah, exactly. And so you didn't have to be able to sing. It was like your elective, and you just thought it might be easy to do voice. And so we're in this class, and there was a guy in there. Um, <laughs> good grief. It's a really good story. Hang on. <laughs> Humor is my default, so that helps me. All right, so there's a guy in there named Austin Ryan who was transitioning from business to music. And if you don't know who Austin is, Austin came and led worship at Common Ground the, the first day you were in this building on Easter, or did he? Is that right? Yeah. So Austin is um, he's the leader of a nationwide ministry called Worship Catalyst. Austin and I became friends in that voice studio when we had to sing in front of all those other people, and um, we kind of just became friends. We were both youth pastors the next year. We did things together. We did music together. Um, the person that introduced me to Jennifer was Austin. The person that connected me to Common Ground <laughs> Good job, everybody. <laughs> You're following along. That's right. It was Austin. I joked with him after moving here. I said, you know, all of my best decisions involve you in some way. And that's really weird. But 
preparing for this message, I realized I met Austin because a voice lady told me I didn't have the talent. <laughs> and I ended up in that vocal studio with people that couldn't sing. And he and I were like the only two that could sing, and we became friends. And now God has used that to steer my life way more than it could have ever been steered if I'd have just been a music major. I knew this was going to be bad because I cried last night. <laughs> when, I, when I preached it to myself and I cry, that's bad. All right. Uh, that's right. So um, you're, you're, there's going to be some curves. You're, you don't know how that's going to look. Um, but God's way is always the best way. It's not always a beautiful straight line. It doesn't always happen the way we think it should happen. But the important thing is, do I believe in God's way? Do I believe in God's plan? Will I trust it to walk through the difficult times to get to the good that he has planned for me? Another approach to God's will, I think the crying part's over so y'all can rest easy. Uh, Another approach to God's will is to acknowledge it, to know it, and then to proceed to disobey it, right? So it's one thing to walk through life and kind of miss things because maybe you're not walking closely with God, but it's totally different when you know what he wants you to do, you acknowledge it, and then you say, well, I'm going to do it my own way. It's not enough to know what you should do. Look again at verse 17. We're going to put it on the screen. It's really short, but whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. God actually expects us to follow through and take action. And again, James is very direct. In our battle of wills, godliness on the outside and worldliness on the inside is sin. Knowing what God wants for you and not following it is just as worldly, just as sinful as open disobedience it's an attitude like that toddler at dinner time. That's not what God desires. And I'm afraid, at least in my life, that's where I find myself a lot. Is I say, God, I want to do it your way, but I'm still doing it my way. But God, I want to do it your way, but I'm still going to be in control of this. We've got to remember who is in charge. When you're making plans for the future, begin with submission to God's will. Begin with submission. You don't even know the plan yet. That's okay. Begin with submission. If you find yourself today out of step with God, repent, commit to giving him the rightful place of control in your life. If there's something you know he wants for you, something you know he wants you to do, but you've been ignoring it, repent and submit. It's sin to know what you should do and not do it. Maybe you're here today and you've never surrendered to God the forgiveness that he offers through his son Jesus You've said no to him your whole life. And, and God says, I made a way for you to be right with me through my son Jesus. He was perfect. You're not. He had no sin. You do. He didn't deserve death, but he died. You deserve death, but you can find life if you will accept my son as your Lord and Savior. If you'll submit to his rightful place of lordship in your life. So maybe that's you today. There'll be people in the back that want to talk to you. You can mark that on your on your program, on the Connect card that you want to know more about following Jesus, and you can put that in the response box. But don't leave today without finding out what it means to know Jesus and to, to begin this journey. Let's commit together 
that we're not going to work hard to maximize our own little stories, that we're not going to try to make our story the biggest story, but that we will submit to God and join our lives with his story because there's only one God, and guess what? You're not him, and we need to, we need to remember that. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for all the ways that you remind us of our rightful place, that you're God and we're not. God, I thank you for all these personal stories and for the emotion that they bring up, both because I've seen you bring me through, and also, God, I'm reminded of how stubborn and wrong I have been at different times. And so, God, I just pray that if there's anyone in here that, that heard this message from you today, God, that they would repent and surrender. God, if we're making plans without you as a church, I pray that you would show that to us clearly. God, we want to be part of your story, part of your kingdom. God, if there's anyone here that needs to know you in a personal way for the first time, I pray that they would have the courage to mark their program or to, to travel to the back of the room and talk to someone and pray with someone. God, we exist so that people can know the good news of who you are and what you've done. And so I pray, God, that that would be on our heart at all times, on our mind at all times. Thank you for your word, for teaching us today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.